welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show today is Dr. Alan Avis. He's a professor of the Faculty of Medicine and the founding director of the Center for Emotions and Health at Dalhousie University in Canada. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. Um, I would like to welcome um, Alan Abbas back to our podcast. He is a professor in the Faculty of Medicine and founding director of the Center for Emotions and Health at Dalhousie University in Canada. He's a leading teacher and researcher in this area of short-term dynamic psychotherapy, having provided over 300 invited presentations and 250 publications. His most recent book, Hidden from View, Clinician's Guide to Psychophysiological Disorders, is now published in several languages. So, Alan, welcome back to the podcast, and I'm excited to have you on, as you know, for many reasons. But we finished up our last podcast with just touching on this, what's called short-term dynamic psychotherapy. And I know you, you yourself have some back issues and combination of exercise and understanding these concepts. Um, you're back playing basketball, which is exciting at age 59. So I'm impressed by that. So what I really would like to focus on, you mentioned just really briefly review how you came to this awareness of this tool. Yeah, so I was uh, working in the emergency department as a family doc, and I was just finding so many patients coming in who had somatic symptoms, physical symptoms, that I just, I'd, I'd evaluate them and uh, test, and I could never find any answers. So I was just really frustrated that I knew there was something else going on with these patients, but I didn't know how to, how to deal with it, how to evaluate it. And I, then I ran across a, a form of short-term psychotherapy uh, developed by uh, Dr. Habib Davalu at McGill University and found I could do a second year residency. So I went ahead and did that and started to work with this uh, treatment model, which really is uh, involved with mind-body uh, emotional processes. And the basic hypothesis is that your emotions can be expressed physically or mentally or both. Is that correct? That um, the... Uh, the model and the underlying uh, principle is that uh, childhood adversity uh, changes around body and mind function uh, and leaves a person vulnerable to a whole range of health problems, interpersonal problems, uh, symptoms, uh, and other conditions uh, due to adversity and due to emotions that haven't been able to be processed. So one output from that is physical symptoms. One can be anxiety, one can be depression, one can be interpersonal challenges, addictions. Uh, so there's different outputs possible, different responses possible. Uh, but one is certainly is, is physical symptoms, leading the person to emergency, to hospital, to have chronic pain and other conditions. Could you briefly, briefly review, you did an outline years ago, which I thought was great about smooth muscles, skeletal muscle, et cetera, that there is different categories of physical symptoms that, that would occur from your body chemistry being off. Yeah, so these different uh, path, pathways of what we call unconscious anxiety. So these are anxiety outputs related to emotions that haven't been processed. So first one, it, we call it striated muscle. It's the voluntary muscle of the body. And it starts in the thumbs and it goes south on the body. So it goes down the hand, down the, the chest wall, uh, abdomen, legs, and feet. And so what you see is a lot of 
hand clenching and sighing respirations and musculoskeletal symptoms, meaning, uh, and it can also go up to the jaw and to the scalp uh, and neck. So uh, spasms, aches, pains, tremors, tics, um, you know, hyperventilation from sighing too much, inducing panic symptoms. These are common things, common in the emergency department where three out of four people coming with chest pain we're not, are not gonna have any findings. So uh, muscular, so that's the first level. And the second level is a smooth muscle, which is in the uh, organs of the, the bowel, airways, blood vessels, and bladder, which is a related type of muscle. These work on their own automatically. And when, those, um, mu when that muscle is being affected, the person can have irritable bowel symptoms, reflux disease, bladder spasm, blood pressure changes, migraine headaches from spasm, airway spasm. So these muscles, uh, there's a di bit different mechanism there. It's related to earlier uh, traumatic events in childhood. Uh, and um, when the person has anxiety going there, they look quite calm. Their muscle, their, their voluntary muscles are quite relaxed, but they got a lot of cramps and, and, and they're feeling bad in their body. And they're seeing an internist because this is the land of internal medicine <clears throat> where where half or so of new consults to internal medicine specialties will have no findings. Uh, so you're in a queue if you're gonna wait to see a cardiologist behind tons and tons of people uh, who are gonna have no findings and really who are going, in a lot of cases, they're going to the wrong office. They really uh, ought to be going to try to get a chance to settle down the body and understand what's going on otherwise. The third level is in the form of cognitive perceptual disruption. So this is when the special senses, meaning the vision, hearing, smell, taste, uh, are, are not working properly, that, um, or the person is cognitively confused with uh, losing track of the thoughts, um, getting dizzy, fainting, uh, having a pseudo seizure, a, fit, a, a seizure that's not electrical, even can hallucinate under the burden of anxiety. Uh, so the typical phenomenon there you'll see is a person who's confused, has blurred vision, or, visual loss, hearing loss, um, a range of symptoms like that. And they are lined up to the, <clears throat> to the uh, neurology office and uh, getting MRI scans that are um, having ab no abnormalities or nothing that adds up to make sense for the, these symptoms. And the fourth is motoric, motoric conversion where the person gets paralysis or weakness in certain muscle areas. And that can affect arms, legs, they can affect the vocal cords and affect uh, any of these muscle groups in the whole body. Uh, and the person can land in a wheelchair because of weakness and uh, paralysis. That yeah, and it's, and it's real paralysis. It's not, this is no, I've been through a few of these with my patients and they can't yeah. move. It's not, it's just not possible to move. Absolutely. So here's what, so if I, I'm going to do my orthopedic interpretation of what you just said. So basically, if you're under a lot of stress, your body responds in kind with the smooth muscle, the skeletal muscle, the um, cognition or your nervous system, and then your whole body can respond with what we call maybe conversion reaction. And as you, I think you know, <clears throat> know a little bit about my stories, I had 17 different symptoms when I was at the worst part of my deal. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to address really briefly, because I think this is really important, is that your body is translating your environment into physical and mental symptoms. And if you have a adverse childhood, it's like a feral cat compared to a domestic cat. You're hyper-reactive. You're processing things more quickly. <clears throat> it's hard to calm a feral cat down. By the way, feral just means raised in the wild. 
And those of you who have been exposed to a feral cat, you cannot get close to these creatures because they're on guard all the time. So as an adult, if you're always on guard, your body's going to respond really quickly to stress much quicker than somebody who was raised in a safe, nurturing environment. So I'm going to say something. I know you're a psychiatrist, but it's not really psychological. You just It's just a direct link to your nervous system. Yeah. So the uh, that, that's uh, definitely a very clear way to say it as well. Um, so there's autonomic, the autonomic system is, is reset at different levels and you can, but the good news is you can reset it again. Right. You can correct that and uh, you can correct it with a variety of things that you do. If you say more top down or behavioral on the sort of like changing around thoughts and behaviors and going into feared areas and doing things to challenge oneself, forcing the body into a settled state. And you can do it sometimes from, if you say top up, meaning processing emotions that are somewhat tending to activate the autonomic nervous system that are kind of unspoken feelings about things, um, stored up sadness, stored up pockets of anger toward people that hurt, hurt, hurt a person and guilt about that anger, the mixed feelings. Uh, so the two different kind of lines of approach uh, and sometimes both. Uh, so sometimes um, people will respond to uh, a treatment like ours, pain is markedly reduced, uh, mostly stops, but then there's still behavioral issues. There's still habits. There's still things they need to do different to get things settled and to um, work, exercise, uh, train the mind and body in other ways. So maybe to illustrate these um, short-term dynamic psychotherapy, um, let's say you met me 20 years ago when I was in the midst of my own chronic pain. I was having migraine headaches, my feet were burning, my ears were ringing, I had stomach issues, back pain, neck pain, anxiety, depression. I had it all. Because so I walk into your office yeah. and uh, I'll just cut to the chase. I had a horrible childhood, very abusive. So what do you do with me? What, what, is this, what does this short-term dynamic psychotherapy approach do? So when a person comes in, um, I'm looking to see, first of all, how they're responding to the potential of an attachment with me and a collaborative team working together. Okay. Because that, that there will harken back to any attachment things from childhood. Any, any leftover business from that is going to come up in that moment and it's going to manifest as these patterns of unconscious anxiety. So, for can, example, can you, can you define attachment for us? Yeah. Attachment is sort of a, a potential for a secure, collaborative, caring, um, caring um, event or sustained process between two people. I'm just going to put it in that way to make it. But so, so I, but as a kid, I didn't have much attachment. I had sort of non-attachment, right? So if I don't, if I wasn't attached as a child in an abusive environment, how can right. I develop an attachment to you? Because we're, we're all wired to have a drive for attachment in okay. any moment, you know, unless something's damaged, we want to attach, we're, we're built to attach. Okay. So it's automatic. It's natural to do it. So the drive for attachment is enough to bring any feelings about when that was thwarted and frustrated in the past as a kid, when you try to attach to a dad who was neglecting or whatever, uh, those feelings get activated very quickly when they come in the office. So what do I see? I might see tension in the muscles. I might see, I might see the person's nauseated before they come in. They have stomach upset. I might see that they can't think clear or their vision's blurring. Uh, or I might see them just guarded and detached and frozen and going away automatic. So they're coming in for help, but at the same time, walls are coming 
So I respond to those things. I don't respond to, and I don't necessarily take much of a history right away. If they come in with these things, I respond right away to that. I'll say, I notice your body's doing this when you're coming in. What's, what's happening, causing that to happen? What kind of feelings come up to make your body do this or whatever it's doing? Now, if the anxiety is in the stomach or causing confusion, the first thing I do is bring down the anxiety. So I'll do that by kind of grounding techniques. I'll do a little bit of just asking to notice their body which brings in some reflective centers and has a settling effect. And then when they settle, the anxiety will tend to go in the muscles and they're nice and solid and toned again. And then I can start asking about emotions. When the person's already in the stu having stomach symptoms, I can't start focusing there, they'll get worse. So I have to regulate, help them settle, then go back up when they're settled. So, so what I'm doing there is I'm educating them on the fly about what attachment does to them, what emotions do to them and help them see a pathway forward. I'll tell you, by 10, 15 minutes, people feel hopeful. They feel better, even if they've been discouraged in the medical system for 20, 30 years. They're like, they're, they're interested, okay? And even though they're tense or uncomfortable, they, they, wanna, they wanna do something. So that's the beginning of the process. So you don't spend a lot of time explaining, you really just go to work. Yeah, I explain more if it's in the stomach or in causing confusion, I'll do okay. more. A little bit more, we call it recapping, but it's, it's short bits of education on, on what's going on. So when you say dynamic psychotherapy means you're just actually allowing them to feel emotions and sensations and connecting, connecting the two. Is that a fair assessment? Well, ultimately, the objective is to feel what needs to be felt so that the next time they attach to someone, they don't get unconscious anxiety and they don't have symptoms going on in the body so that trying to clear out those past emotions by experiencing them and removing the unconscious anxiety about those emotions. So you can say that unconscious anxiety is about fear of aggression going out. And so the body clamps unconsciously to hold in, or it gets into the stomach to shut down, or it gets into confusion so that everyone is safe and fine, or paralysis is the ultimate. So, you know, work with a person who's uh, whenever uh, the feeling of anger was coming up, thinking about his mother, his left arm was going almost paralyzed. Okay. It's like as if he was, and when he finally was able to feel anger come up in his body, he had anger in both hands with an urge to grab the mother and then a terrible guilty feeling about this. This is an old feeling from childhood that he had suppressed these emotions of wanting to hurt the mother because he loved the mother. So he was going paralyzed on the way to those feelings over and over. Now, when he felt that feeling once, he stopped having any more arm symptoms. It just completely stopped. So these are body. Yeah. So it happens pretty quickly. It can happen automatic. It can be persistent. So some people get a persistent stopping of, of activated emotions. Uh, and other times it's episodic. It just comes and goes. And the person, for example, get an argument with their, uh, with their wife, and then they're, they're in emergency because they've lost a vision in one eye. Okay. okay. And right. then by the time you interview them and talk a bit, it's gone, it's gone it's, away. It's all better. Right. So what, um, I'm guessing you have lots of success. I mean, can you estimate, this is a, not a fair question really, but can you estimate uh, of the patients you see? I, really, I realize there's a select group of patients that see you. I mean, a lot of patients won't even see you. So not much you can do there. But if a person comes into your office and engages in the treatment, what, how would you estimate what percent of people respond to this type of approach? So I studied that in some detail in my first 166 patients I worked with in the 90s and found it was 
little over 80% respond and kept gains in a passive follow-up period. Um, when we do, um, it depends on the condition. It depends on, um, you know, the anxiety pathways. If the person has confusion in the neurological, the treatment needs to be longer. Okay. And sometimes when we studied it, we don't have enough sessions and we know they're not going to be done treatment. So right. it's a cutoff treatment in those cases. Uh, we, um, but it's, um, but 80% is also what uh, Davalu uh, reported in his first large case series is around almost identical amount of response, which is a very high rate for psychotherapy, actually. And how many sessions, just ballpark? I know I realize um, it's different for each person, but I mean, just, what, six sessions, a dozen sessions a um, year? It's, the average is uh, 15 to 25, depending on the population. One okay. study we did at personality disorders, it was 26 or 27 sessions. We just did a, a severe chronic depression study with 16 sessions uh, and 40% were complete, were normal at outcome, which is the highest response rate of any treatment for that kind of severe depression that's been published so far. Wow. Yeah, 16 sessions. So I just want to, so I'm just going to go back to this term, short-term dynamic psychotherapy. So the term means you're simply asking people to feel and process. Do, am I hearing that correctly? Yes. Be present. Right. Make sure nothing gets in the way of that. Be self-caring and let whatever emotions come up while you do that, just let them be felt, know what they are, feel them. And we put them together and process them. We'll put them in the context of where they belong in life kind of to heal it up, like the same as healing a loss. But a lot of times um, when there's significant somatic symptoms, there's some pocket of intense anger and guilt with people about hurting them that are in there as well as just grief. So it's grief, you know, there's disappointment and sadness, and then there's pockets of anger, strong anger and guilt about the anger uh, that are inhibited in there. This is a conversation we'll have another day about PTSD, but... I just want to clarify for the audience because people keep saying, well, this is psychological and it is and it isn't. So if you're upset in the moment right now, I'm anxious or frustrated about something. It's like that feral cat analogy. It just something right now reminds you something in the past that was dangerous, right? Yeah. So um, yes, you can. So yeah, people, and, and, and in the case of, you know, if you've been hurt by people, the incident that causes the, the stress and is, is people. See, so it's a people trauma, right? You know, childhood adversity is people trauma. Right. So like parents and siblings and, and the neighbor who battered you and all this stuff, those, those are people, people induced trauma means that every time you meet a person that could crop up right. and get showing up in the body and showing up into a variety of symptoms. And, uh, um, and also when you get a, making a loving bond, having a baby, um, you know, uh, getting married, uh, successes. These are the things that bring all of this feelings up, by the way, as much as any other negative quote stress, the positive stress, the gaining of attachments, it's a huge stressor on the, an emotional level. Wow. Could you explain that for a second? That's pretty big. Yeah. Because, you know, think about, think about people that you see and I see how many of them come in and say they started having symptoms when everything was going great. They got married and they had the kids and now they got the chronic pain. You see that all the time, right? Well, that happened to me. I mean, my symptoms started with the birth of my first son. I'm my oh, only son. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, oh. no, I, within six months after my son was born, there was a real person, real relationship, and all of a sudden it just penetrated through something. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's the attachment center of your mind started okay. to activate. You said, yeah, loving bond. And then your mind went through all the files and said, oh, yeah, loving bond means someone's going to hit me and, and neglect me and do things bad to me. Wow. So those emotions start to crop up. And then you say, I love this kid. And those, and those feelings are coming up. But I love the kid. And that caused emotions to go in the body into symptoms at that point. So then it's like the best point of life. And then you feel miserable. This is, this is normal. I, mean, I need to talk to you about this again, because I've always told people for a long time, there's tremendous anxiety with success. Yeah. But I didn't really think of it in these terms as far as attachment. I always thought, well, the higher you climb, the farther the fall. It's like my golf game, which rarely is good. But if it starts getting <laughs> good for three or four holes in a row, I just wonder when the next bad shot's going to come along. So I thought that was it. But this actually makes a lot of sense, what you just said, that you go to this attachment center of the body. So... Um, I'd like to finish up here with, with two things. First, I'd like to know, you know, I, I, I'm assuming you're busy. You're probably not that accessible, but you are accessible at some level. So you're, what, what's your general, uh, my understanding is you're spending most of your time writing papers, teaching other clinicians. And I know you have a practice, which I'm guessing is more than full. What's your access to the world? Um, so I mean, my main thing I've been doing this year is teaching a lot of courses, a lot online. <laughs> Okay. That's, and, uh, and, and providing supervision. So I, I train a lot of trainers around the world who have their own service training programs that are spread out over their countries. So that's my main, one of my main things I'm doing is training trainers uh, and there are other training groups. So, and then, so, and I have a small uh, work with some patients in our service uh, at the hospital based service. And I see a few people uh, through like um that are dis on disability, They're, they really can't work, they can't function. Um, so, um, and I'll, by the way, those are those services are really cost effective when studies we've done. We did a study for the welfare service of our, our province here. They saved uh, $80,000 in, or no, it was $800,000 in five-year follow-up uh, by letting us treat some people and right. get some of them back to work mm. that were long-term disability. So, yeah. So um, do you have a, like a, a center that this type of therapy is offered with other clinicians? Is it? There's, there's a network of people all over the place, including in, in the US and Europe, Australia, other countries that um, provide this type of, this type of treatment. There's, um, and how, so there's, how, how would you access those? I mean, what would we look for a, to access? There's a it? listing on, um, there's an, the organization on International Experiential Dynamic Therapy Association, IEDTA.net. There's a list of therapists there. Um, this is a group of international group with some hundreds of uh, clinicians and teachers okay. using this type of model. So there's, there's uh, listings there, uh, courses and things are listed there as well. Okay. And could you just finish off with a quick story about um, just one of your successes? Uh, so one um, that comes to mind that was published in a, a newspaper article a few years back was a person who uh, lost her voice. She went completely uh, aphonic, unable to speak for a month. Uh, and uh, in the first interview, as the emotion started to rise up in her body and uh, she was able to feel some of these feelings go through. Her voice popped on in a way that really surprised her that all of a sudden she could speak. Uh, but when she started to speak and when those emotions came up, it was it opened a huge amount of uh, trauma that she was going through, having uh, been uh, 
uh, abandoned, abused, and then taken away in childhood uh, after, um, and then when, when she grew up and then had a daughter at the same age, at the same age that she was traumatized, that's when she started to fall apart. Wow. You see, the age of the trauma starts to reactivate all these things. And when her son became big and strong, that activated fear as well. So she started to develop multiple types of symptoms. And that went on for, had gone on for years. And we worked together. We had 30 or 40 meetings. And uh, she did well working, um, sustained uh, gain on the voice, uh, able to speak, able to function, more, more healthy relationship with the kids. And I mean, so that's like one kind of example of a person who had suffered a long time. It was, I think she had 100 emergency visits wow. in the 10 years before treatment. Uh, so it was a... Then she came out of, she basically came out of the medical care system. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, we see the same thing. We, you know, we, we come from a, we come from a different approach. And I think that every, for each person, different approaches work differently, but this is a wonderful resource. I'm pretty excited about it. So we've just touched the smallest tip of the iceberg of Alan Abess. And so um, we'll have you back. There's lots more things I want to discuss. Um, so this is really wonderful, and I really, uh, really appreciate the time you spent with us. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Alan Abbas, for being on the show today and explaining short-term dynamic psychotherapy and sharing examples of how it is used in practice. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.